there are approximately the same number of unserved and underserved households today as there were 10 years ago. The reason does not have to do with lack of investment in the telecommunications industry. It has to do with lack of foresight. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm wearing a headset for the first time in years rather than recording this on a proper mic, so I'm kind of curious how it's going to turn out. Uh, but I have here uh, one of my one of our favorite all-time guests, John Chambers. Uh, welcome back. Uh, John is a, uh, uh, one of the partners in Connexon and uh, a person whose voice is very well known through this industry as bringing, a, uh, I think, a, a persistent and cold logic to some of these discussions. Welcome, John. Thanks, Christopher. Good to hear you. You're coming across uh, loud and clear. Yeah, usually I'm loud, not always so clear. Um, so Connexon, for people who haven't listened, first of all, go back and, and listen to some of those past episodes because our conversations with John tend to be some of the best ones. Uh, but Connexon focuses entirely on working with rural electric cooperatives and in those kinds of environments. Uh, how is life working with the rural electrics? Well, I got a text this morning. It was the first thing I saw when I woke up from one of our uh, great friends in Oklahoma, and the text just said 30,000. <laughs> I remember, was it two years ago, you said they were building at the fastest rate you'd seen anyone do it, I think, and they're sure holding on to that. This is Oklahoma Electric Co-op. Uh, OEC Fiber is their uh, uh, broadband subsidiary name. 30,000 for a, a co-op that's maybe 40 some thousand members and they have built into a couple of towns. So 30,000 in a few years, uh, they're killing it. And it is to me another example of, this is a you know, local company in the community for 85 years. They decided to get into this business with a lot of, of hesitation, a lot of thought, reluctance initially, um, and 30,000 new broadband subscribers in the last few years isn't going to sound like a lot to AT&T or Comcast, but where they operate, it's the whole community. And, and it is, to me, one of the clear examples of the right way to approach rural broadband, any type of broadband, I suppose, but no, we're just in rural areas, which is an electric co-op is a pure manifestation of a community-led business that has sustained that community, first with electricity, now with broadband. And that's 30,000 subscribers who, you know, used to get DSL service from AT&T once upon a time. So um, that that is a nice thing to wake up to this morning. Um, it it is the there's a lot of frustrations in everybody's field. I mean, you know, it 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 doesn't matter what you do for a living, whether you're uh, checking out groceries or whether you're digging trenches or you, there's always frustration. It's nice to have things that remind you, you know why you wake up in the morning uh and and that email i'll give a shout out again to the fellow who sent it david goodspeed um 
that text rather that he sent me was a was a great wake up this morning. I just uh, I just had a out of curiosity had to go and remind myself what their pricing was and it's a uh, hundred megabit is their intro offer fifty five dollars a month. Uh, it's a heck of a deal. And uh, uh, people that want a gigabit, $85 a month, uh, I'm going to go ahead and guess that those are the actual prices that show up on people's bills as opposed to, you know, what we see with uh, the more revenue-focused providers where it's uh, a, a little bit ambiguous as to what you'll actually pay at the end of the month. That is, that has been their pricing since they launched. Um, they've never changed their pricing. We, that is, Connexon, co-ops we work with and and our subsidiary our internet service business which is uh, called connexon connect last year we introduced a two gigabit tier for 99 dollars. and i remember less than a decade ago when people made fun of google for launching gigabit service in kansas city and when my business partner andy clint launched gigabit service in rural missouri people questioned the need. Why, why would you introduce gigabit service? How are you going to use it? Are you going to stream 20, 30 movies all at the same time? Like, there is no need for it. I still don't understand why we have highways that have multiple lanes and then when all cars are only one lane wide. <laughs> That's right. And I, look, I expected when we launched symmetrical two gigabit service, true speeds, that people would have that same question. And I anticipated our take rate on two gig service would be in the two to 5% range of our customers. That sounds even ambitious. I would have guessed less than 1%, honestly. Yeah. So we have three tiers of service, 100 meg, gigabit, two gigabit. The split is almost even wherever we offer service of about a third, a third, and a third of our customers take 100 meg, gig, and two gig service. And the two gig service, a third of our customers tells me not only, you know, was my projection way off, but it tells me people will continue to get high quality service when you make it available at an affordable price. And when I ask people who have taken two gig service, why? Oftentimes they simply say, well, I was paying that much for 10 megabit service. So why not? I'm excited about it. I still haven't taken full advantage of uh, the Comcast speeds where I am because the Soho gear, um, you know, like my, my network equipment in my house is kind of maxes out at a, at a gigabit a second. Uh, but I'm, I'm hoping we'll see a new line of that popping out because uh, when I'm transferring my big files around my home, it's pretty annoying to only be getting, you know, a hundred some megabits a second or um, megabytes a second when you're measuring the file transfer. And um uh, you know, I can, I can see the use for it. And I'll tell you right now, like, I mean, I'm, I'm moving stuff up to the cloud. Um, I'm in my office. I got a hundred megabit symmetrical connection. And if I had two gigabytes, uh, I would be spending less time going back and forth in my office to make sure I've got the Dropbox things working and stuff like that, because I have to wait so long for that volume. So you, you have just incidentally touched on what I think is going to be a huge fight in the next couple few years having to do with the funding. The, the bead funding in particular uh, for rural broadband or unserved areas and underserved areas. And that has to do with the upload speeds. So if you're working here, if you're uploading files, the upload speeds for cable and um, the notice of inquiry that the FCC launched, whether broadband should be defined as 100 down, 20 up, 
the, the B program, which takes as its directive, the statutory language of the Infrastructure Act, which says that underserved are areas that lack 100 down, 20 up. To me, what the fight is going to be about over where to fund for bead funding is not going to be what lacks 25.3 because three quarters of those places will already be receiving funding, RDOF funding or ARPA funding, maybe a higher percentage of that. So what will be left are areas that lack 100 down, 20 up. And areas that lack 100 down, 20 up, it, it's all going to come down the way I think of it to one major fight. Is cable broadband really broadband? And, and I, as one who came up in the industry through the cable industries, I worked for Comcast and Cox and TCI and Charter and a bunch of others. I would always have said that cable broadband is broadband, in fact, is the only broadband. Prior to fiber. Prior to fiber. Now, if the question is, is broadband Reliable broadband is the term used in the in the act and the term used by NTIA. Reliable broadband, some consistent delivery of broadband that gets you, forget the download speed. You can get downloads of 100 meg down by lots of transmission media. Can you get 20 meg up? And, and that is not a question that will be answered by the FCC's maps right and this is to me the the one of although there are a series of mistakes the fcc has made that is in gathering data that doesn't answer the core question that they've been asked the core question they've been asked is where in the country do locations lack 25.3 and where do they lack 100 down 20 up tell us where with specificity if you don't collect the data to answer that question, folks are going to receive these maps some point next year for the first time. And what will be revealed is that the FCC didn't collect the necessary data to answer that question. And then we're going to be into this massive challenge process that will occupy time, energy, money, and won't leads to the very reason that Congress appropriated tens of billions of dollars, that is to spend the money in rural areas that lack service today so that they can get service. All we'll be doing is churning, churning paper between the FCC and, and applicants, between the FCC and those that have submitted data to the FCC, between the FCC and NTIA, we'll be churning and churning and churning <laughs> you know, yeah. for years, unless somebody steps in and says, the, you're on the wrong path, it's time for a course correction now, before we discover in six months time that you've been on the wrong path for the last three years. You know, for people who might be a little bit newer, I want to jump back in time to explore what you are just saying. Because for me, it seems like yesterday that it was 2012, and the cable networks were so oversold that nobody ever saw the speeds that were advertised, right? Because like each neighborhood was exceeding the technical amount that the cable company could make available. 
And in the 2013-2014 environment, the the cable companies largely, like the, especially the better ones like Comcast, implemented Doxis 3.0. And at that point, my neighborhood started seeing I was regularly getting what was advertised to me because they had enough capacity to meet neighborhood demand. And at that time, they also improved the upload speed. And what we saw was that um, they could deliver the uploads too, in part because not a lot of people were using it. And the question now is, as people are using more and more, are we going to see that where the download speed, there's plenty of space in the system, but the cable company can only deliver me 20 megabits a second of upload as long as most of my neighbors aren't using it. And we're going to see a lot more congestion there for several years until this DOCSIS 4, DOCSIS symmetrical gets rolled out. And, and I guess I would cap that off by saying, in my mind, this is the ultimate failure of the FCC. I've been, I've been very disappointed and disillusioned with the FCC, which you're intimately familiar with having worked there as well. Um, and when I look back at the fact that we have an expert agency – and the whole point of an expert agency is that they're not supposed to be surface level, right? They're supposed to really get down and, and to make good policy. And the fact that they just keep basically saying, well, as long as a house can get 25-3 or can get 100 by 20, well, what does that really mean? Because, like, I, like, as you know, you could deliver a gigabit symmetrical over wireless to a house, but to try to do it to all of their neighboring houses is almost impossible. And so, like, what does it actually mean if a house could get it? I, I, I don't – and there's no technical, like, approach that actually makes sense for trying to r- deal with that paradox. So the other uh, related part to what you've just said – is that the digital divide it, it can clearly be explained as the difference between services available in urban areas and services available in rural areas, unserved areas. That's, That's the majority the divide. of it. There's a few people right now whose heads are exploding because there are some unserved areas in urban areas, but you understand that. But the vast majority of the issue is that, what you just described. Yeah. So in the statute, it just says urban and rural high cost, but... If, you know, we can ignore the statute and say there are other digital divides, sure. There's a low income portion of the statute too. The statute I'm talking about is a communications act. So, but simply the digital divide is the divide between one thing and another thing, the difference between those two things. So as I've just explained to you about what we offer as service and that's in rural areas, but what we offer, we don't offer a hundred down, 20 up that's too slow. We don't offer anything that slow. Nothing. And yet, the FCC has put out an NOI. That's a notice which can take years. I expect they're putting that out so that they come up with their answer next February when they issue their next broadband report. But they're just asking the question, teasing out this question as to whether the broadband definition should be changed from 25 down three up to 100 down 20 up. That is, they're at the initial part of asking whether something which is already slower than the thing, the speed that's available in urban areas today and is available all across the country today, whether that should be the new definition. By the time they decide it is, it's already no longer broadband according to the marketplace. So we will spend money. The, the, the reason we as a public will spend money through government agencies on things that will be out of date before the money gets spent and the digital divide will persist in perpetuity until the FCC 
and NTIA decide to spend money not on yesterday's technology, but on tomorrow's technology. And, and there's a reason that the, there, are, there are approximately the same number of unserved and underserved households today as there were 10 years ago. The reason does not have to do with lack of investment in the telecommunications industry. It has to do with <laughs> lack of foresight, not even a lot of foresight. Like, you know, looking down just at your shoes about the next step you're gonna take. All you have to do is say, why should I invest in something that is no longer the speed that's available today for something that should last for 10 years? If we take that approach in 10 years time, we'll have the same number of unserved and underserved locations. I, I, I've never understood the complete focus on speed. And I recognize the FCC has other categories they look at. They look at speed, they look at latency, they look at affordability. But usually people look at speed and usually when they look at speed, they just talk about the download and the upload is more and more important in an environment where people work increasingly from home and where there's more and more video, more and more video uplinks, as well as uh, streaming video down to your various devices. So. The Congress discussed, there were early versions of this Infrastructure Act, early iterations introduced by Clyburn, introduced by others that would have set as a symmetrical level the speeds. It's still the right answer. And any state could still do it that way. Any state could still say, you know, the speed has to be symmetrical. And we're gonna take a measure as to what's available today. And what's available today, if you ask not me, not Jonathan Chambers running around rural America with our little two gigabit service, you can ask AT&T and you can ask Verizon and you can ask all of the large telecommunications companies that invest and you ask them, what do you invest in and what services do you offer? And AT&T would boast that they offer five gigabits per second, symmetrical speeds. Why do we continue to invest in lesser things? Is it stupidity? I know there's smart people working on this at the FCC and NTIA. Smart people can be stupid in my experience, but I take your point. Go ahead. Uh, is it <laughs> corruption? Is it avarice? Is it, um, you know, the old politics of compromise? Is it any of those? It's a sort of laziness. A capture. I mean, I I do think a part of it is a capture and the capture. Yeah, I mean, which is which is to say a kind of like um, innocent corruption. <laughs> I mean, depending on how one uses the word, corruption always implies intent. When in fact, you know, I think of corruption the way our our founding fathers use that term, which basically means you know whether or not it's perverted. Is the system perverted towards some or or not? And um and I and I think a lot at the FCC there's sort of this issue of. Uh, which I hear from the fixed wireless folks regularly, which is why are you so worried about upload, Chris? You know, no one's really using their upload. We monitor our 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 network bandwidth and we give people upload and, and they don't use it very much. So, you know, why should we increase uh, our upload speeds if, if, if it's just a waste of, of time and capacity? You know the answer? No. Yeah, That's you why know I talk the to answer. You. <laughs> because this is the essence of, of what you've been doing since I first met you, longer than that, 
The answer is the very first thing that I mentioned in our conversation, which is the answer are community-based organizations. For me, it's electric co-ops that have lots and lots of assets that make it work better than other community organizations. Um, electric co-ops, the, 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 the one I mentioned at the outset, Oklahoma Electric Fiber. You wanna see what works? Go to Oklahoma City, visit the folks in Norman, visit David Goodspeed and Patrick Grace, visit them, you'll see what works, what works at a local level. Without large amounts of federal funding and subsidies, you'll see what works. And this isn't one of those, if it works there, it can work anywhere. It takes hard work. It takes dedication. It takes, it takes a, a, a commitment to mission to serve community. But it's all the right things that it takes that makes that work. And you'll see the same thing now. We started working with OEC um, in 2017, I guess. It's now working in lots and lots of places and we work in more than half the states. We build today more than a thousand miles of fiber optic cable each and every week. You can see a path from where we've come from. We as a country, we the electric co-ops, you can see a path from where we've come from a decade ago to where this can go. And it is possible to build a fiber optic cable to every single rural home in the country. And there is enough money to do so. And as sure as you know, we're talking, we won't do it as a country, but we can get, we can get a lot closer in the next few years than, than we ever, uh, than at least I thought we could have sitting in a different place 10 years ago looking at these same issues. Let me ask you a question about that because um, I recently saw a, uh, a system, it was a municipal system that I believe is mostly uh, centralized, like a fiber middle mile kind of stuff with a few customers here or there, but it was mainly for um, you know connecting large institutions and things like that. And they were preparing to privatize it, not because they wanted to, but because they couldn't find uh, the, a person that wanted to move there and could work at the right salary to run it. Are you seeing that at all with, with electric co-ops that are trying? Because, I mean, they have great talent within them already, but a lot of times they're going to want to bring in someone that's had decades of experience in the industry. Are, you know, Is there any concern with like finding the right people to run these systems at this point? Not where we work. And we work in the most remote parts of the country, in the poorest parts of the country. We work a lot in persistent poverty counties. Yeah, I mean, you're down there in the Mississippi Delta and Louisiana, just so people have a sense. You're you're in a lot of places. Those yeah. are two that just stick out of mind in mind for being having a lot of poverty. We're just looking at some of those counties have 50 percent of people between 50 and 75 percent of people live um, below 200 percent of the poverty line. If I could be back in one of my old jobs and and help direct some of the funding, I would direct funding um, some of that Amer affordable connectivity program funding, I would direct more of it to persistent poverty counties and make their lives easier. Yes, we work a lot in Florida, Georgia, uh, Mississippi, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Missouri, Louisiana, I mean, that part of Texas, you know, we, we work a lot in the Southeast and the Southwest. We, we also work in the Midwest. We work in about half the country. But where we work, this is to your question, you can either attract people, or if you're saying some folks say, well, there nobody will come and live here and work here. It's just training. People will work hard anywhere. 
And um, I heard the same thing years ago, sometimes from electric co-ops. We don't know that we could attract the right people to do the um, to do the support, to do the operations work, to do the engineering. To, but I haven't found it in practice that as I haven't found that missing piece, these are good jobs. Like if you work in a place where it's a persistent poverty county and you're offering a good job, you'll find somebody to take that job. You can train them. What I thought you were going to say, since you described that project as a middle mile project, <laughs> Uh, where they were connecting anchor institutions. Now, that's a different problem. Those middle mile projects, they never work. That's like looking for car keys beneath the street light when you lost them in the alley. You know, you're looking there because that's where the light is, the old joke. Uh, uh, money over the decade has gone to middle mile largely because that's what was easy for governments to spend their money on. Because there was less political. There was less political opposition. Exactly. Less political opposition to the so-called overbuilding argument. The concept was, well, we'll build middle mile and then others will come. Yeah, the mythical others. No, it doesn't work. It's only been 20, actually 25 years of experience now with middle mile networks and not seeing that happen. I mean, I can point to five edge cases. Maybe I can point to three edge cases. I don't know if I could do five. Um, but it almost never happened. The only place I would spend middle mile on now, and I know there's a billion dollar NTIA middle mile program. And since NTIA's other programs aren't up and running, they're going to be flooded with, with requests for that middle mile, which will just convince them that, you know, I guess we need more middle mile when really it is, well, that's the program that you've got running. That's why people are applying for it. The only place I'd put in middle mile are places where there is more or less just one provider, a monopoly provider where somebody is charging rates that are higher than, than average, if you can find those places, that's how I'd review that program. That is, if, if I were reviewing applicants, I'd want to know what, what do you spend for DIA? What do you spend for direct internet access today? What does it cost you to get a, a 10 gig or a and or a 100 gig circuit back to an internet exchange point, back to Atlanta, back to Kansas City? What does that cost you if you're paying more then the average, then there's a case. If you're paying a lot more than the average, the median, then there would be a case for building middle mile there. Have you been refused? We have. We've been refused um, a middle mile, that is, leasing circuits back to internet exchange points from Windstream, for example, because Windstream views us as a competitor. So where you're being refused access for competitive reasons, where the prices are higher as they are, for example, in New Hampshire, because they only have one provider up there who took government money, there you should spend some money on middle mile. But, but the reason you'll get a lot of middle mile applications right now is because the bead program, the only thing they're gonna be moving is, is the middle mile program, that $42.5 billion, it's stuck behind this slow moving train that has to do with the mapping of unserved and underserved locations in the country. And that train, that, that's not pulling into the station for another year. Yeah, People will chase the money just because that's the only programs available. The freeing up the bead program, there's a way to do it. I haven't heard a single useful word out of NTIA about how they could get things going. There is a need 
to change direction. And I, I, I don't see it happening. The direction we're going on is the bulk of the money appropriated last November, the bulk of that money is still a year away. And 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 there's there's no reason. Well, I think it. the beginning of that money is a year away. The bulk of the money must be two or three years away if you can use the term the bulk. I, I mean the bulk, the forty two and a half billion of the sixty billion or so that was part of the Right, no, that's that's what I'm saying. I mean, like I think in a year we might see the beginning of that twenty percent amount, right? Exactly right. Might. We're a, we're a year away from the beginning. That is from the states getting their application, turning get getting their their allocation. After which they have to make their application. They have to get their applications approved. They have to start their state programs, which often takes six months to a year then to operate. We are two years away from any money flowing. That would be not my best guess. I'd be willing to bet money on it. You won't see money flowing to end user applicants, those that are building networks, for two more years unless we change course now. This isn't hard to figure out. Like the one thing that we have on our side as a country, policymakers looking at this is we got decades of history to point to. You can see what works and what doesn't work. This doesn't require for any more experimentation. It's pretty clear. And what's also clear is that the, the location fabric, the, the overlay of the location fabric, which is self-reported advertised speed availability data from ISPs, that challenge process, which for the first time is gonna be challenges to locations, challenges both as to the physical attribute, is something there? Is there a structure there or isn't there something there? And to the speed reported by an ISP of all different types and reported in a combination of shape files and, and, and CSV lists, which will list the location fabric data, all with a new articulation of how, how speeds are to be calculated. Distant calcula distance calculations between DSLAMs and end users, propagation characteristics of, of the spectrum um, of, uh, for the fixed wireless guys, uh, calculations of distance, for the HFC, the fiber coax uh, systems, cable systems, all of that is going to be something brand new, run through the mill, and then there are going to be challenges to that, challenges that will number in the millions and possibly in the tens of millions, which must be adjudicated by a handful of individuals at a regulatory agency one by one, perhaps. That's why we're years away. Yes. And one of the things that I find frustrating, and I don't fully understand this yet, but is that I don't understand how we're putting all this money into developing that location fabric. You have access to it because you're an ISP, but I don't because I'm a nonprofit organization. Like this is super secret. And, you know, I look at the work that Free Press had done in identifying a lot of the problems with RDOF. It's not clear they'd be able to do that with this new location fabric because they're not supposed to see it because it's a big secret unless you're an ISP, I guess. And I don't I don't understand the value or the why we would allow this to be a big secret um, in terms of what that fabric is. Well, that's right. We compared it with what we won in RDOF. And, you know, we've won more money than any company in the country. So um, we have a lot of data. You to mean as at. dispersed or you mean 
in aggregate. Wow, as, as dispersed. So we had a lot of locations that we looked at. The free press data was crap, but it was taken up by the current FCC for political reasons. Wanted to show that the last FCC had made mistakes. The anecdotal evidence that there were, you know, parking lots or international airports and this, and you had to look at the specific data and I, we could have shown you where it was right and where it was wrong. But what you're talking about now, yeah, do you have access to the, to the fabric? You do not. Um, we do. We've looked at it. We've compared it with where we're building. I think the guys at CostQuest are, are brilliant. I've known them for years. They do really good work. I told them as recently as uh, today that they have taken on an impossible task. I've taken on difficult tasks in my life, but I like, I, I, you know, I try to stay away from impossible. That's wise. I don't I mean, mind things so let me, let me that just other change people the don't think is possible. So, so let's, it, impo- impossible. Right. No, and I, what they're trying I to agree do. with you. I feel like when you and I have talked before, the ideal situation is one in which we have a public fabric that is transparent, that actually has estimated costs to connect as part of it, that states could use, that others could challenge. That is the ideal. And I'm not blaming CostQuest for this. Like I feel like this is a failure of the FCC. It doesn't seem like we're heading in that direction. And I feel like we're heading less in that direction than I thought we were. Comparing the data fabric, the location fabric of serviceable locations, it shouldn't surprise anyone that there are lots and lots of errors because you'd miss things the first time through that you're trying to, here's, here's what they're trying to do, identify broadband serviceable locations for every single location in the country, whatever that number really is, 130, 140 million things structures and having to make decisions that are on an individual basis as to whether, well, is this a serviceable location or not? Sometimes looking at imagery, you can, there's a great, I would commend to anybody listening to an interview with Jim Stegman, the the president, CEO of CostQuest that he gave to uh, Light Reading, I think. And he describes what they have to do in order to identify sometimes. They're looking at satellite imagery sometimes. They're going to get it wrong because anybody would. It's a a good faith effort that they're undertaking. And over the course of several years, they likely will have a a really good data set. But on the policy part, NTIA is interpreting, misinterpreting, I would say, the mandate by Congress to wait for the publication of the full Data Act maps by the FCC before they can do an allocation. I agree with you. I say misinterpreting because there's no need for that. There's no need even reading the statutory language. You don't need to know the specific identity of every single location in the country that could take broadband before you can come up with an allocation that's just a formula based on a ratio of A to B, A being unserved in your state, B being unserved in the nation. That's it. That's all you have to do to come up with an allocation. Yep. It's simple algebraic. You could do lots and lots of things that would come up with answers that are within a couple of percent of the other answers that are close to the number of locations. And you don't have to have the exact number before you begin allocating money or approving plans to spend money because you're not going to spend all the money in the first year. 
or the first two years or the first three years. Therefore, you really do have two or three years to get the location fabric right and start approving plans and spending the money without the risk that you got the exact number wrong because you can true up the number in two or three or four right. years when you need to spend the remaining five or 10% of the money. You know that everyone is getting more than $100 million. So right. you can start there. Absolutely. You could start with $100 million or a state like Texas. You know Texas is going to get several billion. You could start, in, you could start with 50% of the calculated amount for everybody and not worry about missing yes. it. Yeah. You don't yeah. have to worry that, oh, I was off by 3% because I used what? I used census blocks instead of specific locations because I used you know, rooftops, because I use, there's lots and lots of things you could use that would get you a close enough population. And you could use lots of things. You don't have to wait for the maps. And yet they choose to wait for the maps. This is a choice. This isn't statutory. I know how to read statutes. I used to write statutes for a living. So that CostQuest, so the guys at CostQuest can get the maps correct because we, looking at this in years to come, have a lot at stake at getting this right. I know there are other consultants that write maps for states, but those state maps are not better than this CostQuest data and, and FCC data collection. They're not better. We, I, we have access to this kind of data. In fact, our data is GIS data of electric meter locations for the co-ops we work at, and we have data for on about 20% of the geography of the country. We have lots and lots of data. It's not just this, this statistically significant. It's, it's like uber accurate. It's the best data you could possibly have. And we have compared that data with everybody else's maps. And when I say it's, it's like super accurate, really key data, what I mean is, we design networks off of the GIS data that electric co-ops have as to the meter locations, the poles, the spans. We design, we design two electric meters. And so to, in my world, a broadband serviceable location, that's the term used in the act, BSL, a broadband serviceable location is most often an electric meter, the spot exact spot of an electric meter. Why? Because we design a fiber network to reach electric meters. Anything that has power access to electricity, access to power likely will take fiber. That's our experience in working in this field for a long, long time. So if I look at my data, my, my client's data, I see stuff that would inform true accuracy in a mapping project as the underlying layer. And I think we could get there over that is with the FCC's mapping process over the course of the next couple of years. I don't think we get there by September 1st, the date in which all of this data is supposed to be submitted to the FCC. We could separate out the rush to get the data true and accurate from the allocation that NTIA has to make so that states can start getting some money to solve their broadband problems. We can then 
better inform CostQuest and the data collection process. And all of this is getting to a point before you get to the speeds that are reported by ISPs as to whether something is served or unserved. But you can do all that work first. The thing that's driving the mistake is the interpretation of the act that, that, that folks need the maps to be made public before NTIA can take out its little calculator and figure out how much the state of New Hampshire or the state of, of Texas or the state of Oregon should get. We've published our calculation. Our calculation, I will tell you, we published a year ago. It's going to be within 10%, certainly, probably be within 5% of the final number. And as I keep saying, you don't need to be that accurate if all you're going to uh, uh, allocate initially is the first 25 to 50%. I agree with, with that. I will say that I wonder if I'm sitting back, if NTIA did all that, if it would make that much of a difference? Because I don't know how many states are actually ready. Like some states will be ready, right, to start taking in this money. But a number of the states need this time anyway to get their act together. Not where I work. Yeah, I have a home in Colorado. Uh, I was talking to the head of the, the new head of the broadband office there some months back. She said she had been told that they should expect an allocation of between two and $500 million. That's a big range. And, and she was engaged in a planning effort that is writing their broadband plan based on what she's being told their allocation might be. Their allocation is going to be like 1.2 billion. You come up with a different plan if you think your allocation is 1.2 billion than if you think your allocation is 200 right. million. You'll come up with a different plan. <laughs> sure, sure. So <laughs> I, I hear this all the time it, by state broadband offices. They are writing plans, but they should know how much money to expect. Does it help even to tell people, here's that, how much money you could expect, give or take some percentage? Absolutely. It helps them in the planning process. As far as whether they're ready to spend money, Georgia just, just committed $400 million through uh, one of the ARPA plans. Louisiana just announced $130-something million. They're all spending money, man. So whether they're ready or not, people are looking for action, and some of the states are already moving forward. So you ought to know what your budget is going to be in order to come up with a plan and come up with something logical. And, and yeah, there are states that are ready. And, and the ones that aren't ready, the state of New Hampshire has a $50 million RFP out for, for that second phase of the ARPA money. What are you going to do a year from now if you're still waiting for that other money? This is something that NTIA has. This is a failure on their part, just the first of many so far. And it makes a real difference if you're planning, say, a five to 10 year plan that you know what you're working with. This is all of the money that's going to be spent in the next decade. This is it. I agree with you that there's a lot more than just telling people how much money. There are other things that NTIA should be doing to facilitate state broadband plans rather than layering on additional obligations. There are other things they could be doing to make the, the rules clear and clean to provide support because this, this to me is the biggest problem states will have. 
and NTIA could help. Most state broadband offices I visit with, they have a handful of people there in the office. I mean, that's it. Their office is staffed with two or four people. They don't have a thousand engineers. You have to design a spending plan with somewhere between a hundred million and two, three billion dollars, depending on the size of your state. You have to design it with the resources that you have to implement it, not for purposes of design of the plan, but for, for purposes of, of reviewing applications and implementing the plan. And when you only have a couple few people, you, you better figure out a way that you can review the billions of dollars worth of applications that come through the door in a way that lets you with some confidence, spend the public's right. money on what will solve the problem. What NTIA could be doing is providing not just examples of places where this has worked, but tools they could use, whether it's software tools, review tools, methods that they've found that work better than others. And I mean, that's the key to all of this, because when you, when you do finally get to the point where you're allocating the funding based on the broadband plan. That's when you get this rush of applications for money, for pent up demand for funding. And uh, biggest shortcoming I've seen in state offices is they don't have the resource. Right. And you wouldn't expect them to have the resources for, for this sort of thing. And NTIA could be helping with that, but they're not giving them the tools. Well, John, we're running out of time. This is what always happens. We never run out of topics. We only run out of time. Um, <laughs> so uh, I don't like cutting it off there, uh, but uh, we are going to. And I really want to thank you for your time today. Thank you for your work um, doing all this. Cool. Thanks, Christopher. Good to talk to you as always. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ilsr.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.